0: The author, Neil Strauss, once famously wrote, Expectations are premeditated resentments. And I believe he actually said, Unspoken expectations are the worst. Unspoken expectations are premeditated resentments. So here we find Moses now in Exodus 5. He is called. God has given signs, so he is equipped, and the text shows us that even in that situation, we should never assume. We should never expect that God is going to work how we think he should work in our way and in our time, no matter how many books on leadership or companies you've led. Those who are called to walk by faith into God's plan for your life, you're not Moses, but you're you, and God has plans for you. Those who are called and equipped should never assume. Why? Why? Well, for most of you, we we know the answer to this. Whether it's leading in your work or in your family or your kids or your grandkids, oftentimes to obey God and walk into your call that you might be led by Jesus and lead others to him results in things not getting easier but actually harder at first. It's quite easy to feel that you're doing what God's asked you to do and you've made things worse. So I got to thinking about being a dad and how I should just listen to my wife at first and not the third time. She's always right the first time, so why three? This is apropos, especially in the realm of directions and instructions. How many times have we had to take the scenic route because I knew just where to go? Siri and Google, be darned. Or perhaps instructions, and I've had my final slice of humble pie on this when I met my match in the form of putting together anything, even the smallest thing, purchased at Ikea. (laughs) Setting out to do the right thing in my own strength and making things harder at first. Of course, on a more serious note, and a note that I think we can all resonate with Living out the gospel of God's love in your life, in your family, in this city, not for those who deserve it, but especially for those who you don't think do, because that was you when God saved you. Living out that gospel of love, following in that faith, is genuinely difficult. The text reminds us that God does not promise you or me a life of ease and comfort and security and prosperity. Indeed, that's a false gospel. We see it in the life of Moses. Moses goes, and at first, all is well. This is the end of chapter 4. Remember, we're on this little, you know, we got this little traveling show. Two Jews and a stick. Moses and Aaron go to the people of God. They throw the stick down, and they give them the signs. The snake, the leprosy, and the water of the Nile turn to blood. And lo and behold, the people of Israel believe Praise the Lord. This stiff-necked people, we're told at the end of chapter 4, not only believes, but they worship and they bow down. So we have this tale of Moses and Aaron, these two old guys, you know, grumpier old prophets, two octogenarian shepherds with a stick who have gone, obeyed the Lord, and the results are coming in and it looks good. They feel like they're winning. But then It turns. And it doesn't just turn a little bit. It turns bad. It turns so bad that I hope and I pray and I dare you to know Jesus so personally, to believe that he really is a father in such a personal way that you would dare to pray a prayer like the one that Moses prays at the end of chapter 5, where he literally says to God, why have you done this? Why have you done evil? Oh, and by the way, Pharaoh's actually done something. You've done nothing. You haven't delivered your people at all. And why did you even send me? What starts off as a campaign of wins after one significant and consequential failure becomes what I like to call another Moses moment. Oh, how we all have our Moses moments and would that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true love of the Father through the Son by the Spirit to you, get so deep, get so deep in your soul that we can pray those kind of prayers. I mean, I relate to that, don't you? Moses moments, challenges that you feel equipped to take on and as soon as you do, things start going for the worse. Remember, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine in Albuquerque about some church challenges a few years back. Yes, church challenges. It's not you, it's me, okay? It's not you, it's me. It's a family, it's a church. And of course, we're all learning to follow God in our call and our leadership. And I was telling him, man, this is hard. Nobody's listening to me and, you know, my jokes are old and I kind of want people to like me and, you know, I'm exposing all these idols, you know, that, that make for a great comedian and a horrible pastor, and he turned to me and he said these words. He said, well, my mentor asked me a question once and I'm going to ask you. Have you ever really studied shepherds? You know, like the Bedouin guys that still wander about in Israel? Is that easy? Comfortable? Fun all the time? You know, late mornings, early night, happy hour every day? He looked me straight in the eyes and with love and tenderness as a friend, he said, "What?" did you expect? What did you expect? To follow the sovereign God of the universe into the call that's on your life. What did you expect? And you know what? I decided to answer his honest question with an honest answer. Well, actually, I expected it to not be this hard sometimes. I expected, you know, fun and really nice dinners and going to coffee and counseling and winning and, you know, using my stick and doing all the good stuff. Have you experienced that in your own life? Had your expectations thwarted? Are there places in your life where those thwarted expectations have led to resentment? This happens most often and most clearly in our relationships. I've read a number of books on you know, marriage and family counseling and resentment is always pointed to as the thing that's it's kind of the death nail. You know that a couple can deal with all manner of issues. But once that seed of bitterness creeps in and grows into a tree of resentment, hopelessness, you will never change, and I actually don't like you. And we've all been there. Lastly, will we will we trust God? Will we trust our God, our Lord, our Adonai? even when doing the right thing, results in it being the harder thing. As I said, everything starts out great for Moses, but quickly turns sour. And yet, by implication, there is great grace and mercy from the gospel of Jesus in our passage. Something that I'm going to call later the lowrider gospel. You guys know what lowriders are, right? I can tell by looking at you that a few of you have lowriders. I brought up a picture of a lowrider since I know some of y'all have no idea what a lowrider is. This exhibit is going on right now at Via Linda Mall, which is also called Santa Fe Place, and it's amazing to see these cars and the art and the beauty. So even though it's a hard chapter, just wait because we're going to get to the lowrider gospel in a minute. You'll see. And what you will see in this text, the main point of this text, is that if you and I follow God's call by faith, right? We're not Moses, but if we belong to Jesus, God has a calling and a purpose and a plan for your life. To bring him glory, to be whole, to have joy. To be such a good-smelling, free-loved person that others are drawn to that. If you follow God's call by faith, things will not always be easy, but God will always be faithful. That's the point of Exodus 5. Things won't always be easy, but God will always be faithful. So this this is what we need, this low-rider gospel, God in the low places taking things and making them beautiful for display. And as the Lord is doing that, you can expect, and I can expect, three things. And here it is. You can expect opposition, you can expect frustration, and you can expect on God. In fact, you can expect on God Even more abundantly than you can imagine. But first, you can expect opposition. Look, if you go out into Santa Fe and into your home and your work, and you start talking this crazy nonsense about how you are not only fully loved by God, but fully known, I mean, He knows all of it. He knows your issues, your challenges, your fears, He knows all the Moses moments and prayers. He knows the baggage and the brokenness. He knows where there's trauma. He knows where you come every week to pray that confession and assurance, and it's the same thing every week. And you are loved? And you are free? And you are are free from sin and Satan and death itself because you're covered in the blood of Christ? If you start talking that weirdness, if you start bringing the kingdom of God, you can expect the world, the flesh, and the devil to push back. You better expect opposition. Because the call to follow God is that he will keep his promises, but the pathway is fraught. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, anyone and everyone who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. We see this first and foremost in the person and the work of Pharaoh. Throughout the book of Exodus, Pharaoh is contrasted to Adonai, to the Lord, to Yahweh, to the I am that I am. It's a contrast between good and evil. And so Pharaoh is often referred to and illustrated in hyperbolic and grievous evil. And so these two guys come with their stick, they do their stuff, and Pharaoh is having none of it. You see, Pharaoh is the king of kings. Pharaoh is the Lord of lords. He's the Adonai. He's God. He's the one with the shaved head because he's the sun and the bright necklace of golden sun rays so that anyone who even had the opportunity to stand in his presence would never forget that when he speaks, thus saith the Lord. And so it's on that pretense, his believing he is his own God, that he speaks the most devilish word to these people. The devilish word of all religions, religions, all systems of man's power, everything that is apart from the unmerited grace of God is a gift. Get back to your burdens. you failed. The answer is no. You better earn it. You better try harder. You better do more. Get back to your burdens. But it's worse than that. Because he ties the command to death with an accusation that cuts to the heart. And this is so often how the devil works, right? Like, I don't need the devil's help to sin on my own. By the way, I want you to know, we're not talking about yin and yang here. The devil is a fallen angel, limited in space and time, finite, cannot be everywhere at once. And knowing what God's doing in the world is probably not messing with you. God is the one who holds every quark and atom together by the power of his word. So we're not dealing with equals here, but we are dealing with a deceiver, an accuser, the word Satan in the Hebrew, the one who accuses. And this is where the burden cuts to the heart because Pharaoh says, it's because you're lazy. You know, if you were really a Christian, if you really loved God, if you are a really good person, if you really tried harder, But who you really are isn't God's children who he plans to keep his promise to you. You're lazy. So the devil and the Pharaoh are painted here as one. It's the Pharaoh who demonically says, good and evil are mine to define, even to the extent that he is willing to sacrifice the firstborn of Israel. It's the Pharaoh who enslaves men and women and burdens them so that he might maintain power and control. We get a picture here that brings us back to Genesis. Truly, scholars have pointed this out. Pharaoh is a new Nimrod, and Egypt is a new Babel. This is what sin unrestrained looks like. A man at the top of a pyramid who declares, I am the Lord, and does anything he can, no matter how violent it might be, to throw off anyone who might try to assume his power. Now the consequences of this sinfulness, of this pride and power at work, is the scattering of God's people. Again, we're brought back to Genesis and the story of Babel. Here's what happens when sin is unfettered. They they were unified at the beginning of chapter five. At the very beginning of chapter five, miraculously, God's people, the Hebrews, are like, all right, Moses, we believe you. We believe you, we believe God. We're all in, let's do it. We'll follow our call. We'll trust the Lord. Oh, it, it might be hard, sure, whatever, but God is good, we've seen the signs, let's go. And by the time Pharaoh... And his devilish ways have finished with Moses and the people of God. They're scattered. And so Pharaoh, adding burdens back, is not just an anti-God, but his actions result in the consequence of an undoing of creation itself. Straw no more, there's stubble. And just like our first parents, the children of Israel do what? They turn to each other and blame one another. And they're running blame up and down the chain of command while simultaneously making lists of why it's not their fault and they're justified. Again, this sounds eerily familiar. We need to expect opposition because this isn't just some one-off abnormal story in the middle of the beginning of Exodus. This is a normal story. It's the normal Christian life. It's our story. Until Christ comes, we live in a time of wheat and tares, the now and the not yet. So Jesus, by his Spirit, is breaking in. There is a new kingdom above and beyond, below and beside every kingdom of this world. But at the same time, as the Apostle Paul says, who will save us from these bodies of death? The old man and the new man war, the flesh and the Spirit We have not yet, I mean, I know some of y'all are pretty spiritual, but I don't see any Enoch's in here floating out of your seats up to heaven. The Lord has clearly not raptured any of you yet because I feel like you have some lessons to learn. So we are in the now, the kingdom is come and coming, and the not yet, it is not yet here. We have to expect opposition. Jesus tells his disciples in the book of John in the upper room, don't be surprised. They're fearful, they're anxious, They have no idea what's going to happen. Don't be surprised. Instead, he says, be ready. And that's all you have to do. Easy, easy. We don't have to come on Sundays anymore. We can golf and eat avocado toast and we'll just send you a postcard that says, love God and love your neighbor. Because it's not that hard. Be ready. You're going to face opposition. Expect it. Love God and love your neighbor. And I don't mean the neighbor that's like you and looks like you and, you know, whatever and has your political opinions that are probably, you know, mostly correct. I mean, and especially the ones that are very different than you. But that's all you need to do. Be ready. Okay, but they're not. And so here's where we go from the external to the internal. They're not ready at all. And so we should not only expect opposition, but when it comes our way, we should expect the internal wrestling and frustration of God exposing and revealing the sin and the idols in our own life. It would be good for us to wake up every morning and look in the mirror and say, I am not the Christ. Because when you go out into this challenging world and face opposition, probably the least of your problems is the thing that you can fix out there. The bigger problem is what's going on in here. Why am I feeling these things? Why am I thinking these things? Why this fear and unbelief? Why this anxiety? Or why this pride and desire to control and conquer? Moses echoes these words when he asks the Lord, why did you even bring me here? That's not about God. That's not about God's plan and promises. The Lord's already seen Moses has already seen God's faithfulness. That's about Moses. That's about what's going on inside. So expect frustration. And we see this again in two ways. First, from the people, they turn around and blame Moses. They blame Moses. The same people who minutes earlier, lead us, help us, we love you, cool stick, we're unified. They had one failure? I mean, he goes to Pharaoh one time and they're over it? That's like if you're a bike rider and you get to one hill and you're like, I'm done. You know, I'm done. Where's my car? It's a true story for some people I know. (laughs) Asking for a friend. Now, the little children who were hearing the book of Exodus read, there's no verse numbers and chapter titles, and they knew that the Bible was full of God's great sense of humor, and they would have picked it up right here. One of the main mechanisms of humor in the Old Testament is divine irony. And here it is. Because the people are blaming Moses, but Moses was sent to judge Egypt for Israel. And now the people of Israel are calling down a curse on Moses that he would be judged and that Egypt would be vindicated on their behalf. What we see here is people who wanted to be led, but they don't really want to be led. They're full of fear. And in many organizations and in family systems... we we see that deep anxiety takes root and there are various attempts to sabotage the leadership. But really what's happening for the people here is that their truest hearts are being revealed. They would rather stay in an easy slavery. Oh man, guys, how how often is this us? They would rather stay in an easy slavery where they have at least, they think, a modicum of control then give up that control and let God bring them through the hard things and keep his promises. It's as if the people are saying, I didn't sign up for this. You know, we we believe the stick, but I, I didn't sign up for this version of I am. This is too hard. And so in the same way, our idols, our fears, our sins, what's really there when things aren't going well are revealed. John gave me this quote this week and you can insert anything here. If I expect God to provide financial stability, or an easy life, or comfort, or my kids have to turn out okay, or at least, well, that's over with, my grandkids have to turn out away. Okay. You know, I expect God to do X, Y, or Z. If I expect God to provide financial stability, and I'm financially wiped out, what then? What if I'm financially wiped out and I say, fine then, I don't want to worship that God. If that's the case, what I've actually done is reveal that the God that I was worshiping in the first place was only the God who would keep me financially stable. The very nature of human sinfulness is that we want to make God in our own image. And the people in their blame game and their frustration, reveal that that is in us all. But then we get to Moses and his Moses moment. Because, of course, Moses has had a closer relationship with the Lord than these folks. You might expect, you know, that he would take some time, that he would pray about it that he would read up on a handful of ancient Stephen Covey books. And then, of course, Moses would come back stronger than ever, more confident than ever, more ready to lead, undeterred. And that's the opposite of what happens in the text. It's hard for us to see it in this short prayer. But let me me just say Moses is deeply discouraged here. He is full of self-doubt. This is what we might re- refer to as a Mosaic ugly cry. He is weeping and crying out before the Lord and bringing accusations to God about who he is, about who God is, and about what's going to happen. Ah, you're going too far. Am I? I'll read it again. Then Moses turned to the Lord. Even that Hebrew phraseology assumes that Moses is you know, doing this. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil and you have not delivered your people at all. Again, this is just what I love about the Bible, right? It's not an uninterrupted collection of sayings so that you can live your best life now. It's not just a book about a bunch of guys, Moses, David, whoever, who had it all together and did everything right. It's a book about people like us, for people like us, so we might know there's hope for folks like us. Moses is not spiritual at all. He doesn't call a prayer meeting, instead he responds in anger. We see the word why twice. That repetition, again, in the Hebrew is is there for emphasis. Why have you done this, Lord? What are your motives? What are you really up to? Who do you really care about? I am that I am. Are you going to show up? Are you going to help? Moses is about ready to quit here. The traveling road show of two Jews and a stick has ended in failure. But here's the deeper problem. You can't miss this. Moses is ready to quit not because he has experienced opposition. It's because internally he's in such turmoil, he feels quit on. He feels like God has left him and abandoned him. This is the root of the root of sin. Right, Pharaoh's the obvious tree bearing fruit, but the root of the root is right in Moses, not even Pharaoh. The root of the root is Moses going, you know, I don't know if I trust you, and I don't know if you really love me. And I don't know if you really are going to do what you said you're going to do. You know what, God? I don't know if you really have my best interest in mind. I don't know. I don't know if I'm loved. I don't know if you're going to be there for me. I don't know if you're going to help me. You're going to help me with Pharaoh and these people that are blaming me. I just don't know about you. I don't know if you have me. Man, chapter 5 real happy Father's Day sermon. (laughs) But you know what? For all of us who are fathers, for those of us who even now, my kids are eight and 10, I'd go back and do so many things differently. So much more humility. And I'm not beating myself up about that, okay? I'm just saying, if anything brings you humility and need and brings you to the low places where you desperately need a low rider gospel, it's that. And here's Moses. Because we do the exact same. Our plans are thwarted, our expectations are dashed, and we turn around and we wag our finger at God. We shift blame, we hide, or perhaps we slip into despair thinking, well, God can't do anything with this. It's ruined. So in those low places where opposition has led to frustration, two things we could expect of others and ourselves What's the good news? The good news is that you can expect God. You can expect God to show up, to help, to be faithful. You see, if you follow God's call by faith, things won't always be easy, but God will always be faithful. And not faithful to you when you're doing good. And you were that great leader that everybody always knew you could be. No, faithful in the low places. With the lowrider gospel. So, having said that a few times to stir up sufficient confusion among my congregants, what does I mean by lowrider gospel? I'll tell you what I means. A week ago, we went to this exhibit at the mall, and you've walked through the mall. They've got these lowriders there, and you know, judging by the look of you, I know a few of you guys have lowriders. That's great. All right, they're awesome. They're beautiful. They're crazy and wild. You pull up next to one, flipping switches. Usually a little really soft classical music coming out of the cab, all right? But I love lowriders. I'm from New Mexico. They used to drive through Albuquerque all the time. And here's the deal. You ask anyone who's a master craftsman with lowriders, it's not a car, it's art. So I go to the Santa Fe Place Lowrider Art Exhibit. And I love the kind of art that's art in motion. I mean, I love paintings and sculptures too. But how cool to drive a painting, right? Art in motion. So I go with my wife and kids and met one of the guys who was running the exhibit. He's up from Española and his, you know, buddies from Vegas and kind of talking together. I said, which one's the best one? Instantly, he knew right away. Did not skip a beat. You got to go to the other, deal across the way, go look for the pink Bel Air. That's the best one. And I said, well, why is it the best one? You'll see. You sure? Because they're all cool. It's the best one. Go look. All right, so I walk across the way, Santa Fe Mall, it's like Frogger, right? I make it safely. Walk in, and you see this glorious, beautiful pink Bel Air that had been restored piece by piece with all original parts, except for the lowrider bit. And I walked around, admiring this thing, and it was then that I noticed what I was supposed to notice. It's then why I realized, he said, that's the best one set right out in front of this Pink Bel Air lowrider, were a whole series of pictures. And in those pictures was nothing but a bunch of rusty pieces of junk. Like piles of gross car junk with grass grown this high, rust multicolored, just sitting out in somebody's lawn. And, and it clicked. This was a car that had been in a ditch and rusted, missing pieces, basically somebody's junk. And then an artist, a master craftsman, painstakingly, piece by piece, repaired it, restored it, in fact, made it even greater and more glorious than it originally was. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's the lowrider gospel. (laughs) That's exactly the way that God is working on us. As we are called to go to trust, to lead, to obey, as we meet opposition, as we face frustration. That's how God is working on us. You see, only the master with the right vision and the right tools and the right skills and the desire to pour out love and time can see what is junk that might become beauty and glory. And in the exact same way, the gospel Of Exodus chapter 5 is that Jesus rescues and restores and displays us, you, as we walk by faith. Like that old car, God pulls you out of the pit. Where Pharaoh, devils, rules, and religions say, increase their burdens, God says the work is done, it is finished. Effort and merit are replaced with rest. Like a father, God sees what could be in you, and like a father, God is secure enough to take even your most Moses-like prayers. Earlier, we sang that we have a redeemer. In the ancient Near East, in this day, you could redeem a family member with money. You could buy back someone out of slavery. You could take the junk in someone's backyard and turn it into the most beautiful thing you've ever seen that's a car that jumps. And that's exactly what God has done for his people. Like us, we're, we're the car that the artist has committed to rebuild and restore piece by piece. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Thank God that he doesn't abandon his projects. Thank God that unlike us and the people of Israel who tried one time and then got over it, wow, that was hard. We're done give us easy slavery, please. God never leaves, never forsakes, never abandons. He long suffers, he is eminently faithful, and in that way he is the true and greater father of all. And if the Lord has planned for you and for me to rescue and continue to restore, then certainly the father will relish in that. You see that the you that he's working on, the low-rider you, I don't want you to ever look at another low-rider the same way. The low-rider you that he's working on, he's pleased with his work. Do you believe that? Not when you're feeling spiritual. No, I mean in your Moses moments. Do you believe that in your Moses moments? Because if we're not believing that in our Moses moments, there's something deep, 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 deep down that we believe we can save ourselves. Something deep, deep down that thinks... Well, I wasn't quite good enough. He's mad at me. Which takes the cross and the power of Jesus Christ and attempts to minimize it, although we can't. He is pleased with you. He loves what he has made. He glories in the artistry of your life and the story that you have of how he's been faithful to you. He wants to put you on display. He wants to send you out to Santa Fe so that when your friends pull up to the stoplight and they see you with your hip-hop and your bouncing, they might just say, I don't get it, but I kind of want it. We can expect opposition, that's true. And often that opposition is the tool that God uses to reveal the frustration, the idols, the being torn asunder, the wrestling with God that's inside. But we can always expect God to show up. Even if you feel like a piece of junk rusted out in the backyard, look what God can do. Look what the master, artist, and craftsman can do. And so although we might be careful to manage our expectations. And yes, we expect trials. We can always expect even more and abundantly from God, our Father. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for the low rider gospel which I'm sure Moses had in mind. Lord, thank you that you are the one who takes the old and the broken things. And piece by piece, rescues, restores, repairs, and does it all so that you can shine forth your glory. Lord, we ask for your help in our trials, in the opposition. We don't, it's going to be hard, even when it comes. Even, you know, we we hear this stuff, we believe, okay, yeah, get ready. And we're not ready. (laughs) We don't know what we don't know. And so when it comes our way, Lord, we, we need your help we need you to be there, just like you were for Moses. Secure so that you can hear and receive even our most challenging prayers. Secure so that you don't respond by sending lightning bolts, but instead you've responded by sending your son. What a gift of your grace. What a gift that calls into question and throws to the ground all the thrones and kingdoms and religions which do nothing but add burdens. You don't add burdens, Lord. Instead, you feed us. You don't give us more work. Instead, you give us food. So as we come to this table, may we remember that. May we feast upon all your promises. May we never, never cease to expect what only you can do. Amen.